0: Okay. Um, Questions? Probably none, I'm sure. Um, Yeah, crystal clear, simple stuff. Questions from this morning. Any thoughts, questions, complaints? Uh, Haiku. Oh, in the back. Wanda first, and then Bryce.
1: Could you just explain a little bit more, and maybe did last week we were gone, mm. Um, the definition of suffering because I think of, uh like, a severe, painful thing that's attacked me or cancer, and we pray against all of that. Yeah. So then I get really confused and scared when I read that Jesus says, you will suffer or you're not my child. Okay, so could you just unpack what I know you gave the, like, you know get rid of your desires and Mm. suffer that way but is that really kind of what he's talking about i mean can you just expand on sure suffering
0: probably the the best example of facing suffering i think is jesus not my will but yours be done so on the one hand jesus is no sadist and god is not calling on us to be sadists Woohoo! i'm going to suffer and we can pray against suffering. We pray against sickness. We pray against disease. We pray against all types of suffering, right? Um, and yet we recognize that God is not, it's not as though God's out of control. And so that when the healing doesn't come, when the, the child doesn't come, when the loved one isn't spared, whatever the suffering is, that God has purposed that. It's not, he didn't say, Oh, I couldn't do anything with it and so we're willing to trust him with that word and in some places it's much more explicit when god is calling us into suffering you sit down with someone who's thinking of becoming a convert in iran there's the very real possibility the community will try to kill him right and that that's that's just what is likely to happen um and so we pray against that but what If if Jesus were talking to that person, but you understand that's a possibility, right? And that might be what I call you to, right? Um, John Owen, who we uh, have benefited from some of his books. His book, The Mortification of Sin, is phenomenal. His wife was an invalid for nearly 30 years. cared for her. It limited his ability. I mean, you think of the... There's a suffering with that. There's a suffering of being next to someone you love and care for, and then there's a suffering of, of just the amount of time and the hours... Um, George Whitefield or Whitfield, um, had one child, child grew sick, died. Um, and so, yeah, we pray against that. But, but the point, here's, I guess, the real point is when those prayers aren't answered, has God done us wrong? Has God deceived or tricked us? Has he broken his word? Or do we say, the Lord gave, like Job, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So I remember clearly when, when our firstborn son was born, um, a couple days after Abner was born, holding in my arms realizing simultaneously how much I loved my son and how there is no guarantee I'm going to see him grow up and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you with my son. Now, I am pray against anything happening to my kids and anything happening to my family. I pray against that. God will do me no wrong if they all get in a car crash tomorrow. I mean, I'll be broken. I'll weep. It won't be like, praise God. And that's, as again, as it should be. Just as Jesus was not excited about the cross, and he prayed against it, but, but the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He doesn't owe me anything, right? Does that, does that, does that help, or, is, or am I not going where you're... Oh, is the mic off? It
1: is on. There we go. Okay, I totally get that, but I thought that what you were saying with the Scripture today was, everybody, you will
0: suffer. Oh, Otherwise, yes. you're yes. not... Well, no, okay. no let, me, let me back that up some more, because we were, we were running short on time. 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That, that's what he says. Now, it doesn't mean every moment of every day will be that. But yeah, if, if your Christian walk over years and months has had no suffering that you can identify as being because you're a Christian or because you're trying to be faithful to God, I, I would seriously question if something's amiss because we've got clear statements like that. So there are seasons, mountaintop experiences and seasons in the valley, and, and so the Lord gives us time of refreshment and time of encouragement. But if there aren't any seasons of suffering and trial, yeah, that would seem off and amiss to me. But there's all types of suffering. I mean, suffering doesn't have to be physical. Suffering can be the people at work that, you know, make fun of you. Because you're, I mean, my brother-in-law... Worked for the union in in California doing um, plumbing, and he got all sorts of grief because he would actually do it by the code and according to what was supposed to be done, and would slow them down, and so they they treat him poorly, and they're suffering for for integrity. So I mean, it's not simply like people are going to be hunting and killing you, and if they're not trying to hunt and kill you, you're not a Christian, <laughs> but. There will be suffering if we're being faithful to God, because the darkness hates the light. The world we live in hates God, and so if we're not in any, if that's never happening, something something does seem off or amiss. But at the same time, every moment of every day will not be that. Does that? that, that okay. And then in the back, Bryce.
2: Actually, Boy, this is actually my question.
0: Oh, um, it's your question, JP. Very good.
2: So you can just say you're going to cover this next week if
0: you're going to cover, I'm going to cover, this, cover this next, next week. week. All right. <laughs> I'm glad I got that taken care of.
2: In your okay. readings, did anyone attach any significance to the fact that Jesus says build a tower as opposed to like a barn or a house?
0: What type of significance are you getting at?
2: No, I just, I don't know if, because I mean, I feel like a, counting the cost of building a tower seems like a random building to me, and I don't know if there's any significance of that.
0: Okay. Well, you're getting ahead of where we're going. We will get there next week, so I'll give you the 30-second answer. Sure. It, I think for Jesus' illustration purpose, it needs to be common enough that you've seen it, but it needs to be expensive enough that you may not be able to finish it. And, um, I, and that you may have seen someone potentially start and not finish it. If it's your house, you're going to get it done because you need to sleep. I mean, it may not be done the way you wanted it done. You're not likely going to see the unfinished home. But you may well, if you've got a vineyard, you've got a crops, you put up towers um, to, to see the thing from, or it could be a watchtower for a community, um, for defense. These are things that may not be finished. So it needs to be expensive enough that it's not nothing, and it needs to be common enough that people may or may not have seen an incomplete tower. I don't think there's a whole lot more beyond that. But um, I, can, I can look and I'll keep my eyes open this week, J.P. Okay? Okay. Other questions? Oh, here we go. Steve. Uh, I
2: keep getting the impression that uh, God does not consider pain and suffering bad. Uh, slavery is not bad. Death is not bad. And what we consider it disastrous, but it seems like it's just part of the equation to God, such as, you know, people are in the light, there must be people in the dark for contrast.
0: Let me let me take the pieces of what you said one by one. I'll start with the darkest one, slavery. Slavery in principle, the notion of somebody being owned or possessed by somebody else is not inherently bad. Otherwise, God would not call us to be his servants and slaves. Now, you flesh that out in time and space with people who are sinful, and almost always that's going to be bad. But there, you go to back to Rome, one of the reasons why the... Um, Translators of the ESV, they've said this is why they don't frequently translate doulos as slave but as servant instead. is because we read, as Americans, um, our chattel race-based slavery into the context. In Rome, all sorts of people of all sorts of classes could be slaves, and some of them are quite happy as that. If you were a tutor as a slave in a Roman household, you may well be quite happy and treated quite well. Um, in Roman world, slavery wasn't based necessarily on the color of your skin. So we might import too many connotations, but the notion is you are owned and somebody has the right to tell you to come and to go and to do as you... Probably the best comparison would be like being in the military in some senses um, today, where you are directly under someone's authority who absolutely gets to tell you what to do. And that's the that's the critical element of, of the metaphor. So no, it, it, we can't say in principle The notion of someone being owned, someone being someone else's, is in principle wrong, else God would be wrong in identifying himself as a master who has servants and slaves. We can say that without then saying slavery wherever and whenever it is found is good. We can can say both without speaking out of both sides of our mouths. So Paul can tell slaves that they can be free, earn their freedom, and yet he can send Philemon back to his Christian owner, and in the same letter appeal to the owner to release him. Um, so it's th- okay. That's slavery. That's my brief treatise on slavery. Um, as regards suffering, go to 2 Corinthians 4. Suffering taken by itself is a bad thing. <laughs> Jesus has gone to great lengths to end suffering. So the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, is God will wipe away every tear and the former things will not be remembered. However, suffering, we learn, accomplishes good things now. And so in that sense, suffering has good purposes. So if you take it by itself, suffering as an end in itself is not good. And Jesus dies that death might be done away with. But in 2 Corinthians 4, we read... Hold on. Um, Okay. Pick it up in verse... Oh, seven. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that... The life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also with us will also will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so his grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgivings to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Now here's where the key I'm trying to get to though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now look at seventeen. For this light momentary affliction is what? It's preparing, it's accomplishing, it's at work doing something. And so the suffering of now in and of itself as an end in itself is bad. Look at what it's preparing, doing, and accomplishing. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it's a means to a good end. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, on the one hand, Steve, I would agree with anybody who's going through suffering. This is, I mean, one of the things that the Christian worldview gives me is that when someone grieves loss or death, I can say, Amen. This is unnatural. This is alien. This is not the way things are meant to be. And the party that cries out against it, something is wrong in the world, Amen. Something is wrong in the world. Death is not part of the original picture. And so Jesus weeps at Lazarus's tomb. And yet, precisely through the death and suffering of Jesus' Son, look what God accomplished. If we kept reading in, Peter, in 1 Peter 2, that's exactly where the logic goes, is we're to follow Jesus' footsteps, for just as God redeemed the suffering of His Son for salvation to many others, so too as His people endure suffering, God will use that to bring others to Himself. Um, the early church exploded precisely because of the martyrdoms and the witness of the early church. What is a more compelling argument that that there is a real God who really sustains His people than when people are praising God, rejoicing like the early apostles for being beaten? I mean, how do you explain that? It's not not nearly as impressive when a multi-million dollar football player points to the sky after scoring a touchdown. When someone loses everything, and is praising God. Then people may actually start to ask, who is this God whom you serve? What is the reason for the hope that is within you? So um, Paul can speak in Colossians that way of, I soak up in my body what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Which is a very odd sentence, and very odd phrase. It does not mean Christ's death is lacking anything. But what I believe, and we can go look at that longer if we want, but what I believe Paul is saying is this, that what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is that Christ is not physically here on earth presenting the gospel to people, but we are. And that God has chosen that just as the vehicle of the, how our salvation was procured was through the suffering of his son, so the means, the primary means of the spread of that gospel is through the suffering of his people. Um, that in that way, we follow after Christ's footsteps, that we, we bring the message. Um, to others at great cost to ourselves. It's not rising in Rolls Royces and flying jumbo jets primarily that we're bringing the gospel to foreign countries, but through, through suffering. So that when a, we have a missionary support our church who's in, um, somewhere in the Middle East. And when people look like, why would you take your family and your kids out from their family and their home and all the luxuries and wealth that was in the West and come and live here? Because I got a message that's too important. And, and maybe that'll buy some credibility. People will listen. But make no mistake, there's suffering, there's cost to that. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm, am I hitting where you're itching or is there, am I just sort of dancing around the, the main thing? Okay, there you go. Excellent. More questions or thoughts or anything? Okay. I was talking to somebody in the donut coffee time who shall remain nameless, um, who wanted to, who was talking to me. I want to I make sure I'm balanced on some things. Um, l- let me be clear. Jesus did not always, neither did the apostles always emphasize the, uh, this aspect of, of, of the gospel, of discipleship, when they present the gospel. In fact, one of the earliest studies I did as a new Christian um, was to try to go through all of the Presentations of the gospel, in the book of Acts, to try to find what the common denominators were. There aren't many. You you will be hard pressed to find a pattern, a formula. A this is the way the apostles preach the gospel. It, it's just different in every. Se- I mean, the basic message is the same, but but do they emphasize the humanity of Jesus, or the deity of Jesus? Do they emphasize you know, and you go to Paul at Mars Hill, and it's different. And, and they quote scripture based on who their audience is. And so, I don't want anyone to think. Every time you present the gospel, you need to emphasize this cost-counting discipleship thing. That would be wrong. Um, What I am saying is if we never emphasize this, then that is also, I think, wrong. (laughs) Um, And so if you want to say, well, how often do I have to do this? Well, I think we need to know our context and who we're dealing with. So the Philippian jailer who is just about to kill himself doesn't need to be told, hey, count the cost. Um, But these people who are following Jesus because he makes food and he does miracles and it's all happy and clappy and everything's good, who don't know what they're headed for, who the second there's a whiff of persecution to the scatter, Jesus starts emphasizing that to them. And so we we might do the same if we sense that somebody who's showing interest really doesn't get what they're doing. Um, Hey, understand, this is what this means. So I don't want anyone to think, man, I didn't emphasize discipleship, I didn't preach the gospel. That would be a wrong conclusion. But I also don't want to get to a point where we never emphasize this, and that, that would also be unfaithful, I think, as well. So I was trying to, in the sermon, talk about where we've got repeated ventures. People, You've got five minutes with somebody. Do the best you can, trust God, praise the Lord, and just be faithful. You've got 20 hours with somebody over a year? Let's, let's, let's move beyond platitudes, slogans, and bumper stickers, please. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Any, any thoughts with that or... or um, everyone's anybody oh Kevin Wink
2: just as you say that it makes me uh, I was hesitant to say this but you you hear a lot of times with people that uh, are struggling in marriage say well God wouldn't want me to be unhappy yeah <laughs> and The verse that you pointed out really jumped out at me today in Romans 8 verse 17 Mm. as a good verse to have on hand. In those cases, I struggle with the uh, ability to throw these out when I get confronted with those Mm. type of things. Um, But I'm sure there's many more. I mean, you just... Uh, in Second Corinthians, you just stated another one that would be great to to point out. Um, but I think that is our culture's attitude is that God just wants us to be happy and yet we do not approach the, the fact that we need to suffer along with Him and what He has called us to do. How would you... How would you counsel when you're approached with
0: something like that? Not just
2: the culture, too, the church. Oh, yeah,
0: well, the church has drank the culture of Kool-Aid. And then there's a half-truth that God... I mean, what the picture we got in 2 Corinthians 4 is outwardly perishing, inwardly renewed. So we are inaccurate if all we put forward is the suffering. We're inaccurate if all we put forward is the joy. The accurate picture is while we are suffering, being renewed... And being encouraged and being upheld. That's, that's the picture Paul lays out. So outwardly, inwardly, outwardly crushed, inwardly renewed, outwardly she perishing, inwardly getting life. That God is both sustaining and invigorating and comforting and strengthening us in hard things. That, that would be the full picture. Uh, the fact that we, we live in a culture where people can say things that God wants me happy and everyone doesn't go, what? Tells us how far we've drifted off the mark. So, Does God want you happy? Yes, in him. God wants you happy like Peter and John were praising God for being beaten happy. I mean, they were really happy. He wants us happy in that sense. Joy is probably a better term. But does God want us comfortable? Does God want us, um, I don't see a verse in the Bible that says that. What's tough is when people are in the, and one of the reasons why I'm, I'm trying to get to your question, I really am. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm trying to hammer this now is it is doubly hard when a person is in the fire, is in the furnace, is in the whirlwind, and they haven't understood this. Now they're dealing both with the suffering that they're facing, whatever that suffering is, and the added suffering of, but I thought God promised if I was faithful, he'd give us a child. I thought if I was faithful, my marriage would work. I thought if I was faithful, I'd get the promotion, not be unemployed, right? And so now they've got double suffering. They've got the suffering of the thing and this other, but God, I was good, I was faithful. Why did this bad thing happen? Because they've been taught the prosperity light gospel, which is if you're faithful, big earth-shaking events will not hit your life. Um, I don't think many in, in our church or in our culture... Fully buy into the full prosperity gospel, but the prosperity light is really seductive. That you'll have a relatively smooth life. The cancer won't come. The child won't die. You won't lose the job. And and so I want to try to hit this now because when you've got someone in the world and it is really hard to say to them, I mean, this is a hard thing to say to somebody. What did did you honestly expect? There was a promise that that wouldn't happen. It's just really hard to say to someone in the world, and I'd much rather have people hear that now. So then, when tough times come, they just deal with the single suffering of the thing itself. Uh, so what do you do with somebody? If you're dealing with someone who's really confused, you try to point them you try to point them to, um, to God's faithfulness. I was listening to D.A. Carson tell a story. It hit me right in the fields. I'm on my bike. And I'm riding, and I'm like, I think I had a tear come out my eye at one point. You know, it got me right in the feels. And he was just telling a real-life personal story about his daughter who had a really, really good friend. She was in high school, and this this young woman was young, vivacious, excited, passionate for Jesus, looked like she was going to go and do great things. And from diagnosis to death with leukemia was three months of, of his daughter's friend. Just from diagnosis to death, boom. And he says he's walking down the hall, And he hears his daughter weeping and he goes in and, you know, he says, what's the matter? And she says, Daddy, God could have saved my friend and he didn't and I hate him for it. And, and Carson, uh, says, well, you know, thank you for being honest. That's good. You know, it wouldn't do us any, thank you for feeling open enough to tell me that. It wouldn't do us any good to pretend that wasn't the case. He said, but before you judge God too quickly, um, let me point you some other things God has done that maybe, maybe he knows more of what's going on. Maybe he's got a better feel for what's going on. Points her to the cross, points her to the giving of his son. Just before you judge God too quickly, um, can you trust your friend? Can you trust your, your this situation to a God who sent his son? I maybe mean, that's the best you can do. You can't then load out a big, let me tell you what Jesus said about you better sign up for. It. I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost too late at that point um and and, and fr- frequently when i 'm doing pastoral counseling that's what you're dealing with you're dealing with the person who's getting ready to walk walk on the marriage, walk on whatever because you know like Popeye, have st- what's he say i stands all i say stand- i can't stand no more what's no you've had some slogan i 'm bungling it but but uh and, and that's when it's like it's almost too late because they 've bought into this notion that God wants me happy, and you hear that all the time. I mean, if you want to be really blunt, Vodi Bakum, big black pastor, he's now heading up a seminary in, uh, in Zambia. He, he's got this little clip and he can get away with stuff like this. I can't, but I can impersonate him and sort of get away with it. Um, because people will try to sell that stuff to me. God, God wouldn't want me unhappy and I'm unhappy. Let me get this straight. It pleased God to crush the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, but you, he wouldn't want unhappy and sometimes helping people realize that's what they're saying it was kind of what i was getting at earlier like do, do you really think you have more rights than jesus well it's okay for jesus to suffer but not me no student is greater than his disciple i mean that's luke six forty. a disciple is not above his teacher one of the fundamental principles of being a disciple is and jesus says this in all the gospels in john um it's in john 16 i think they hated me they'll hate you they're gonna treat you like they treated Jesus. And and if we're unwilling to, oh, that's not acceptable. Okay, then you are not really interested in being a disciple, are you? Because that's that's fundamental to the discipleship relationship is you're not greater than your teacher. But So you ask a tough question. What do you do to someone in the middle of the whirlwind? You, you try to point them to God's love. You try to suggest to them. Maybe it doesn't work the way you do, the way it's working but it's hard because once people have bought into that and frequently people are quoting God wants me happy they've already decided they're going to cast off their cross they've already decided they're going to walk out of the relationship or whatever and it's it's frequently too late by the time they start quoting those slogans in my experience but you pray you point them back and you you try to lay a foundation in the church so that that when this stuff comes at least they're spared the the uh added suffering. Like I said earlier, I don't say it flippantly. You know, if, if, if one of my kids dies, I'm going to be broken. I'm going to be wrecked. I don't think I'm going to be raising my fist at God. I really hope I'm not doing that. And, and I hope I'll be spared that suffering of, you know, God, why'd you do? I've just seen God work enough good in things that it's it's easier for me to trust him. Now I find, um, I saw God work amazing things through the death of my father I, I've seen God work amazing things to other people. I've read enough church history to know of amazing what God has done. And that's, that's what you got to have as a long view. You, go, go, to second, go to 1 Peter 2 real fast. I think this is ultimately what you have to have in view. Second um, Peter, 1 Peter 2. I keep saying Second Peter, 1 Peter 2. We, we began this, right, verse 21. For to this you've been called as Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was the seat found in his mouth when he reviled and not reviled in return. So verses 22 and 23 are arguing from the greater to the lesser. Uh, The the force of the argument is this. Jesus was sinless, implied you and I are not. (laughs) And if Jesus who is sinless put up with abuse, how much more ought we? That's the flow of the argument, greater to the lesser. If it's true in the extreme case, how much more in the less extreme case? He committed no sin, neither is deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He just heard all the things he didn't do. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's important, because when we suffer, the answer is not, don't worry, it's meaningless. Don't worry, you just just suck it up. The part of us that cries out for vindication, the part of us that cries out for wrongs to be righted, the scales to be balanced, is right. Jesus was simply willing to wait on God's timetable for God to judge justly. So there's a very real sense in which Jesus desires the people who've wronged him, who sinned against him, who beat him and scourged him and crucified him, for, for that to be dealt with. And he kept entrusting him who judges justly. And then he points out what God accomplished through that. So what, what was God able to do when Jesus trusted him and suffered trusting God's judgment? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you've been healed, for we were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and oversee of your soul. So Peter's argument is, look at what God was able to do and accomplish and use when Jesus... Willingly suffered mistreatment, trusting in God's timetable. Now look at, look at the, what chapter 3 starts with. Likewise. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What's the argument? Wives, if you've got a husband who's a jerk, and you respond with, with righteous, holy living... That might be precisely how God wins your husband to faith. If you're willing to suffer mistreatment, God might work salvation through you to your husband, just as when Jesus suffered mistreatment, he worked salvation to all of them. That's the logic of the passage. So the other point would be when you're in suffering is, is trust and believe. If, if we can bear up underneath it, God is going to work good things through it. That's one of the things I try to encourage people who are suffering with, especially people in difficult spots. I'm, I'm thinking of men I know who are in marriages that are difficult, and there's no end in sight be certain god will not waste your suffering god will use it to redeem things god will use it for good i don't know how but he will he, he isn't going to waste it it's not for no purpose if it was for no purpose then he wouldn't be good so i got to trust that whatever suffering i'm enduring god will use just like he used jesus suffering just like here he envisions the wife i don't know how it's going to show up but it won't be wasted good will come of it he will work redemption through it and that, that's another thing that I will point people to to try to give them hope. I, I, I don't know this side of glory, how that's going to play out, but I'm absolutely convinced that's the case. That our suffering is not meaningless. Just as we read in Second Corinthians, it's accomplishing, it's working things. It's, it's, it's being effective in something good. Um, so that's kind of a long-winded answer, Kevin. I hope that... <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> no, no. Okay. Other. Yeah. Oh, Steve no 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 microphone sir
2: what was the verse he quoted about romans that we need to keep we didn't hear it over here
0: romans go to romans 8 let's read that again romans 8 um 16 i think and 17 yeah 16 and 17 well 15 16 and 17 i'll I'll read it again um Again, this is a very well-known passage. Everyone loves the Abba Father, the Spirit, the adoption. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And yet in and along with that, Paul says that bit at the end that we often leave off in our thinking. Uh, and, And the logic is this, that just as Jesus humbled himself and went down and then was exalted, so for us, we humble ourselves and God exalts the humble, right? There's a cross before the crown. That's the logic, is, is we follow the pattern of our master who humbled himself, and God used that to redeem and save others, and then God exalted him. And if we follow in his path, God will use our lives redemptively, and God will exalt and crown us. Um, that's, that's the logic. Yes, Anna, or... Uh, I,
3: um, I want to go like, back to... Curse. Uh, Second Corinthians 4, Mm. it says since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I guess I have a question um he will, it says um, knowing that he will he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us will also with Jesus and bring us with you. so what does that mean like he will bring us with you?
0: Paul is Paul is uh, in Corinth dealing with some factions, one who's rejected his apostleship. He wrote a, uh, we refer to it as his harsh letter, we don't have it, I don't think we do, some people think it's 1 Corinthians, but I don't think so. He references it um, a little later in chapter 7, but uh, he wrote of a letter of rebuke, most of the church heard the rebuke, and Paul's writing to express his restored relationship with the church. And he's also, towards the end of Second Corinthians, going to warn the remnant of unrepentant people who oppose him. So I think here he's simply noting their unity, that I'm confident the Lord's going to raise me, and I'm confident the Lord's going to raise you, and he's going to bring us together in his presence, that I, it won't be one without the other. We'll, we'll be together. I, I think that's all he's emphasizing there. So I could say to any Christian, you know, the Lord's going to raise me, the Lord's going to raise you, the Lord's going to present us together before the Lord Jesus. Um Yes, Paul's the you there is the Corinthians, Um, and and by extension, any genuine believer in Christ. Him Him and his group, his cohorts, his traveling band of missionaries, us with you, the church at Corinth, and likewise the church at Martinsdale and the church everywhere. I think that's all he's saying. Okay. Anybody else? We got ten minutes. Oh, in the back, Stacy. So,
3: Jeremy, you mentioned how suffering is hard, and it is difficult, and thinking about whether the suffering is uh, relationship-based or physical or whatever else it may be, there's genuinely um, affliction, and it's deep for many people, and yet we know that there's purpose behind it. So what does it look like to suffer well? (laughs)
0: okay we're gonna get out early this morning <laughs> what does it look like to suffer well i i think it looks like um by faith trying to and, and and we do this as a group and one of the reasons why we have a church is we don't we're not supposed to suffer alone so suffering well i think would have these elements let me try it that way we'll have these elements it'll have real suffering love real tears love real anguish Go read your songs. God gave the church 150 songs to sing, and two-thirds of them have lament and mourning in them. That should tell us something. God expects a good portion of the Christian's life, and and that it's okay to express your lament, to express your sorrow. I think sometimes we think that being a faithful Christian means always having a smile and always, it's wonderful, praise the Lord. You read the Psalms. So I think Faithful suffering will involve tears, anguish, sorrow, words of grief, words of lament. Um, That's part of it. And then it will involve trying, grappling to trust God, fighting, um, speaking to yourself. So David in Psalm 42 and 43 lays out his grief, and then he speaks to himself, why are you downcast, O my soul, within me? You can almost picture David talking to himself, soul why are, you, why are you discouraged, soul? Hope in God, soul. So, it's, so it'll look like speaking truth to yourself, reminding yourself of truth, true things. Three times in those two psalms. It's likely one psalm, Psalm 42 and 43. Three times. And the pattern is David pours out his lament, David speaks to himself. David pours out his lament, David speaks to himself. David pours out his lament, David speaks to himself. So faithful suffering will involve a measure of self-counsel, reminding yourself of truth. Faithful suffering will also involve others in the body doing the same thing. So go to go to um, Hebrews 10. And the entire book of Hebrews is focused on what we're going to be looking at next week, persevering, finishing. The salt needs to not run out of saltiness. to use a modern metaphor. We need to not run out of gas. And so Hebrews is focused on that, but Hebrews approaches it much more corporately. And perseverance of the saints is a corporate job and so in um, Hebrews ten, nineteen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest. So here's the two foundational truths. We have confidence to enter. We have a great high priest. Then you're going to get three lettuces. Not, not a head of lettuce, but... Okay, it's a horatory subjunctive, if you care for the grammatical term. Three lettuces. Let us draw near, verse 22. Verse 23, let us hold fast. 24, let us consider. Let's walk through that. So consequently, because we have confidence to enter, because of the blood of Jesus, and because since 21 we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure heart. So we draw, don't run away, don't shrink back, draw near God. Then hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. And I think the person in the middle of suffering, that's the battle. Will I, will I continue on in hope? Or will I, like Job's wife said, curse God and die? And then the third let us, I think, brings that in. Let us consider How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the main reasons we get together on Sunday morning is so that we can mutually encourage each other. Because some of us are going to show up barely holding on, and some of us are going to show up having a week marveling at God's goodness and grace. That we're not all suffering at the same time. We're not all on mountaintops at the same time. We're not all in the valley at the same time. And... Consequently, if my faith is at a low ebb, someone else can speak and encourage me and they can buoy me up. And likewise, if I see someone who's just clinging on, and I'm had, I can tell them, and we encourage each other, and that's how we hold fast. And that, that's, that's one of the reasons we gather on Sunday. Um, that's, that's what listening to sermons online can't do for you. You need others, I need others to speak to and to speak to me, so faithful suffering is going to involve that, which is why um James can talk about weeping with those who weep it's going to be it's it's going to involve um sharing and one of the things that always that always um, bothers the wrong word one of the one of the things I think is always really sad is when people are really suffering and they don't let others in, they're missing out on the potential of other people caring for them i mean it, it also means people can say clumsy, stupid things. It happens. But, but, by, but in general, let people into your suffering so they, the body of Christ can be the body of Christ and help. Um, you know, and people will go through a tragedy and not tell anybody. And, and it's just, you know, there's all this grace that God can minister through His body. So faithful suffering will involve that. It'll involve the body. Uh, faithful suffering will um, be prayerful. Again, the Psalms show us that we're talking to God about these things. Jesus talked to God about his upcoming suffering. So off the top of my head, Stacey, those are my characteristics. Do you want to add anything to that? You got any other characteristics you want to add, or is that a good place to start? It's a tough question. And admittedly, I haven't done Al Ostrand is gonna to add to my list. I haven't done nearly the suffering of some people in this room. So I, I feel kind of, you know, uh afraid to answer such a question, but I'll I'll dare try. Al
2: just say, the, the other thing about suffering that, as the word says, it's inevitable, but that the other hope that we always look for is it, it, it's promised that we're going to have suffering in this world, but we have the hope of eternal life where there isn't mm. going to be no suffering. Right. So that's, you know, I think throughout history, Christians have clung to that of, mm. yes, they're suffering now, but it's going to be nothing compared to eternity because we have that hope. And so that That is a huge motivator to hold on to suffer well because we know how it's going to end up. We know what Christ has done for us and where we're going to be.
0: We are spared the eternal suffering. And so we are willing to endure for a time suffering now. Those who are dedicating their lives to avoiding temporal suffering will inevitably endure eternal suffering. And that's the logic of if you save your life, you'll lose it. If all you're intent on doing is saving, I'm going to live as long as I can, as, as pain-free as I can. If that's your driving number one value, you will perish. And those who are willing to give up their lives will save it. In the book of Revelation, I okay, see the next hand coming. In the book of Revelation, the angels goes out and seals God's elect. And then there's the mark of the beast. There's each, each group's marked. And the, those sealed by the angels will endure the wrath of the beast. And they're spared the wrath of the lamb. And those who receive the mark of the beast are spared the wrath of the beast, and they endure the wrath of the lamb. You're, you're, you know, it's the question is, where do you want to get your suffering? Do you want to be spared God's wrath? Then you, you need to be prepared to walk for a little while through some suffering in this world. If you are, nope, I will avoid as much suffering in this world as possible, then you will face God's wrath. That's the way Jesus casts this. That's the way Revelation plays it out. Um, which is why Jesus says, don't fear man, fear God. Like, if you have to pick, don't pick man's wrath that you want to avoid. Pick God's. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's where we need to have a long view in mind. In, in the same way that when I get on my bike and ride, it, it's not a, it, it eventually it gets pleasant. But when you're tired and your joints hurt, but you have the longer view. I'm going to feel better throughout the day, and in the long run I'm going to be healthier, I'm going to lose some weight. and I do that with an end view. Right? The guy who works out at the gym or whatever. Same thing. We just do that with a longer view. And so we realize glory is waiting and that we're to go to a place where there will be no tears, where God will wipe every tear from our eye where death will be done away with. And so we uh, we say what Paul says, this light, momentary suffering is working for us, a weight of glory beyond comparison. Okay? In the back. Uh, yeah, the one of the ways that also, to her point of how
2: we can uh, uh, look at it in a suffering in a positive light, is as that we can have joy in knowing that our identity uh, is in Christ, that we've been found worthy to uh, suffer. Uh, so it can we can allow it to increase our faith in that, uh,
0: knowing that our our identity is in Christ. Amen. In fact, uh, I'll come to you in a second, Kevin, but that's real fast. i want to back that up with a text. Go to Philippians 3. Here's another one of those passages where I think you'll see there's a phrase that we ignore. You know, we all sing the song, Knowing You, Jesus. Um, Go to Philippians 3, and there's another one of those. This is one of those well-known passages where I think there may be a phrase that that we we haven't noticed or paid much attention to. Um, So Paul says... Verse 7, chapter 3, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, which is to say, I've renounced everything I have. Um, which is, by the way, you're only ever going to do that when you see Christ as more beautiful and more valuable. I mean, that's the other the other flip side of what Jesus is saying this morning. And Jesus elsewhere says, The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man finds and in his joy sells everything to possess. The only reason you're going to count everything else as pig slop is because you've seen the real treasure. But keep going. Um for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which comes through Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We say amen. I want to be raised. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. If any is possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And the logic of the New Testament again and again and again is as you identify with Christ and share in His sufferings, you give strong evidence and proof that you will also likewise share in His resurrection. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead. So He'll raise us from the dead. And so Paul's saying, I want to be conformed to Christ and I want to share in fellowship with Him, not just in His glory and exaltation, but also in His humiliation and suffering. That's what it means to be a Christian. Um, yes, Kevin. Bring us close this out.
2: All right. Uh, this is more uh, an encouragement as what you were saying. Mm. How the church can come alongside suffering people in the church. Mm. It all has to start with our relationships with those people. Mm. I've seen this on both sides. So we. I need to encourage everybody, myself included, that we need to get into each other's lives and make sure everybody or those people in our church um, understand that we sincerely are concerned for them, love Mm. them. Mm. So when those storms come, they will receive that encouragement instead of push it away. Right. So I just want to encourage everybody to put put forth that effort. That it is effort to get into people's lives, to show concern for them, yeah. and to love them.
0: And let me let me piggyback on top of that. And this will be the last thing we'll close. Don't let your fear of not knowing what to say stop you. Don't let your fear of I've never been through. X, so I don't know what to do. I mean, when we lost um, Corbin, our, our child in between um, Sophie and Zadik, some people said some bungling things. I mean, one of my sisters said something that meant, well, it was awful. Um, and that's fine. But don't be afraid. Talk. I, I, I talk more to people who are suffering, and, and they wonder why people aren't encouraging them. And, I, and I'm pretty sure it's just because we're afraid of saying the wrong thing. What do you say? Somebody loses a child. If you haven't lost one yourself, what do you say to somebody who's you know, and just just it's okay to walk. I don't know what to say, and I've never been through what you're going through, but I love you, and I'm praying for you, and I'm sorry. That'll do. That's fine. You know, like get, get out there and talk to people and encourage people. Um, and if and if people aren't talking to you, trust that at least in my experience, most of the time it's just people are terrified of of saying the wrong thing, making it worse, not knowing what to do or say. So yeah, we, we, this is we need to care for one another, and we need to go and talk to them. And you know, if even if you say, "I have no idea what to say to make this any better," but I'm sorry, that'll do. That's cool. <laughs> um, and, and if you bungle and you put your foot in your mouth and you say the wrong thing, that's okay. <laughs> I think in time, I think in short order, people realize you mean well. Even my, one of my sisters who said something not so helpful, I knew she meant well. Um, it didn't really bother me. It was okay. Anyway, on that note, let's break. We'll meet next week. God bless.